You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. With interest rates up and real estate prices at new highs, you may be wondering whether it's still a good place to put your money. Or are we teetering at the top of the market or worse, heading towards a recession? I'm Kathy Fetke and welcome to The Real Well Show. These are uncertain times and the stock market has certainly not been responding well to it. Real estate sales are also down, but prices are still up. Our guest today has a contrarian opinion and actually believes that 2022 will be a great year for buyers. Hunter Thompson is the founder of Assam Capital and has helped hundreds of investors acquire more than $150 million in assets like mobile home parks, self-storage, retail, office, ATM machines, and crypto. And he's here with me today on The Real Wealth Show. So Hunter Thompson, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. You're, you're coming from a different perspective than a lot of people are these days. And you're saying that this is the best time or a great time to be investing, right? Is that, is that your come from right now? A hundred percent. And there's a lot of reasons that this conversation is interesting. There's a lot of data points out there that would give investors pause, including myself. But I just believe weighing all of the data points out there, especially this massive, massive macroeconomic shift because of liquidity that's been ejected into the system. You know, I think this is going to be an incredible favorable time, especially on a risk adjusted basis. So yeah, happy to have the conversation today. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I just, I, I love hearing it because there is a lot of fear out there, but you, you said that 2022 might be the best buying year of the entire economic cycle. So let's, let's look at that. Which economic cycle are you referring to? Yeah, that's a good question. So I know we had this debate, by the way, and I'll just go ahead and say this right now. Uh, we had this debate at Best Ever, which is one of the best conferences um, in the real estate sector. And we had this awesome debate with me and my counterpart, uh, Ben Frazier, or Bob Frazier, I should say, and Kathy Fedke, and also um, John, uh, John Chang. Chang of Marcus Millchaps. And by the way, we set a record. I and my partner set a record because we lost the debate by the largest margin in the history of the conference. Yay! So before, before we get into it, just that's my big disclaimer. However, I really <laughs> well, I, do. I had John Chang on my side. He's the, <laughs> the top you know, economist at Marcus and Millchaps. So I kind of feel like we had that going for us on my side. But that's fair. Yeah. yeah. But in all seriousness, I think everyone on the stage is actually extremely bullish. Yes. And, um, you know, that was kind of admitted during the debate and also after the debate. And I'm, I would like to present, you know, our case, especially in the face of even some concerns around things like the inversion of the yield curve, inflationary risks, et cetera, and, and rising interest rates in particular. So, you know, like I said, excited to have the conversation today. Yeah. And, and just for our listeners, it, the debate was, and they, they just put us on sides. We didn't get to choose our side. Um, the side I was put on was that commercial real estate volume, sales volume would be less in 2022 than it was in 2021. And 2021 was a record year for sales. Uh, and you got put on the side that it was going to be le uh, more, right? That yeah, it was going to be higher sales volume 
in 2022 than 2021. Technically, technically, I think the motion was 2022 will be the biggest buying year of the economic cycle. And from my perspective, your view of that, especially with John Chang, given where he works, you know, he views that based on transaction volume. I, as an investor, I don't care about the number of transactions. I view things on a risk-adjusted basis, um, whether or not I can place my capital. And so of course, part of the debate is to argue over which motion is actually more accurate, but I actually agree. I think that 2022 will not be close to 2021 or 2020 in terms of transaction volume, but in terms of how favorable the time it is to invest, it might be one of the most favorable. Um, so just okay, want to clear that okay. up beforehand. You got to dive into that because, well, all you see is, I mean, even Fannie Mae just came out and said there's going to be a recession next year. So yeah. why would 2022 be a great year to invest? So- that would actually, if that's the case, that would actually bolster my position from my perspective by a long shot. But um, let's start with this. One of the reasons this conversation is happening right now is because the yield curve recently inverted. And I think mm -hmm. that that gets thrown around a lot, but let's walk through what that really means. So yes. typically yields of bonds are larger the further out you go, meaning that if you have a 10-year bond, you would expect the return to be higher than that of a short-term bond because the investor is incurring risk of time, the, the time at which it takes to get their money back from that bond, which makes sense. But every now and then, you know, usually every seven to nine years or so, um, there's a weird economic phenomenon that takes place that so many participants in the market think there's so much short-term risk that people start selling short-term bonds and buying longer-term bonds and the yields of these shorter term bonds, you know, three months, six months, one year, two year, et cetera, can be higher than that of the 10 year bonds. And when that happens, it's called the inversion of the yield curve. It implies that there's a lot of short term risk in the market. Historically speaking, it's been a very good predictor of recessions, usually 18 to 22 months on average after that inversion. So the reason Fannie Mae is coming out and saying that is that that's part of it, but also the market generally believes that. But, you know, one of the reasons we love real estate is that real estate trades based not on recessions, but based on supply and demand and the value of the assets is to a large degree based on how much demand the product is in. And historically speaking, recessions do not mean or equate to 10, 15, 20% plus corrections in real estate, far from it. The reality is any sort of 15% plus correction in real estate is wildly ahistoric. We have examples of it, but that's like a holy crap, hold on you know, to the whatever and get ready for something serious. And I just don't see that based on some of the data points we can talk about today. Okay. Well, that you really explained the yield curve well. I, I appreciate that. I've heard all kinds of ways that people present it. But again, to, to dumb it down, the yield is what the investor is going to get. So if you're not, if you don't have a lot of buyers, you've got to increase the yield to attract buyers. And uh, and if and if they're, you know, dumping bonds, then you don't have any buyers, then the yield goes up. Yeah. Okay. But then that also affects mortgage rates. So could you just explain that how the bond yields can, or how how it's tied to mortgage rates? Of course. So that's kind of like the foundational interest rate, quote, interest rate that everyone focuses on is those bond yields or the federal funds rate, depending on who you're talking to. But what ends up happening is because that's such a foundational uh, metric in the economy, everything sort of acts 
based on the ebbs and flows of those bond yields. And so when you see rising rates, for example, it starts at the Fed and then trickles its way to mortgages eventually. And so really quickly, when people talk about interest rates rising in today's environment, you know, as of the recording this end of April, beginning of March, uh, that is not like some indicator that is actually happening. Right. Does that make sense? Like in the sense mm-hmm. of a, it's not a indicator of recession. I'm talking like there are real deals right now. They're getting blown up because interest rates are rising. That's actually happening in the marketplace right now. But this has to be put in context as the fed increases rates and as mortgage rates are rising, we must look at what's causing that and then weigh this on a risk adjusted basis, meaning tailwinds versus headwinds. So one of the many reasons the Fed is rising rates, raising rates, is because inflation is not only taking place, it's creating real significant political pressure for the Fed to kind of slow down the heating up economy because the consumer is getting squeezed. So before I go any further, is that a fair setup for the, the inflation and interest yeah. rate discussion? Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So when you talk about rising rates, in order to put it in context, we got to think about this discussion around inflation. So most economists right now that follow the typical government data, seven, eight, 9% inflation on an annual basis, if you annualize the current rates. Now, people like you and I, we don't really necessarily trust the government data, but let's say (laughs) that it is correct, just to be conservative, right? If that's the case, a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that real estate is simply a hedge against inflation because they're just thinking about the value on which the asset is traded. I think it is true that if consumer prices increase by 8%, that the value of real estate might increase by 8%, just based on the money supply entering the market. But that's only one of three reasons real estate is created a massive tailwind by inflation. It's not just a hedge. The other reason, other than the equity multiple on which real estate is traded, is what inflation does to the bottom line of these assets that you and I love so much. So a lot of people make the mistake of thinking that if inflation increases rental income, let's say by 8%, and inflation also increases expenses by 8%, that is basically a wash, that we're not in a position to gain. Like rents go up by 8%, expenses increase by 8%, no one's really in a position to gain anything, we're just kind of going along. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, like most many people think of that. The problem, though, is that most of the product types that you and I are most interested in do not have a 50-50 expense ratio. It's not a one-to-one ratio of income to expenses. The ratio is much more tilted towards income, meaning that if you're buying, let's say, a 1984 property, multifamily asset, or self-storage, even more pronounced, usually it's like a 60-40 ratio, 60% of the gross income is actually net income and only 40% goes to pay off expenses. So if inflation does impact net income and expenses the same, you actually have a disproportionate amount of income, meaning that the bottom line is increasing every single year that you have that kind of inflation. It's 8%, but of a much larger number. So the top line is increasing at a higher rate as the bottom line. So the net is actually increasing. Good point. Well said. All right. Well, that explains why so many, I mean, that's one of the reasons we're seeing so many investors flocking to real estate. 
Um, but also if you look at, okay, I'm going to get a 2.97% return buying, a, you know, buying a bond while inflation's at eight and a half percent. So I've just lost, you know, five, five or 6%. Um, it's na- it's really a negative bond when you look at it that way, when inflation's that high and you're locked into this, this low return, whereas we're seeing double digit returns in real estate that even if things slow down and the growth was half of what it's been, it's still better than buying a bond, right? <laughs> that's so true. And, and that's actually a good tie into the third of three reasons why inflation is massive. Because why you wouldn't buy a bond is because you don't want to play the role of a bank with a functional negative interest rate when it comes to inflation, right? That's exactly what you just outlined. Yeah. But the bank is willing to play that role and lend us the money to buy real estate. So the bank, when they're lending us money at 4% or 5% and inflation is at 8%, now all of a sudden the bank is lending us money at a functional negative rate on real adjusted terms to buy an asset which will not only increase because valuations increase, but will also increase because the NOI, the net income will increase. Increase. That's the trifecta of inflation when it comes to real estate owners, meaning as an owner, inflation is great. As someone who's a typical person in the economy on fixed income and doesn't have assets that increase when inflation increases, it's a very, very sad and different tale. But if the rich are going to get richer and the poor get poorer, I'm going to come on here and say, you got to buy assets, which are at least going to protect you against inflation, if not thrive during inflation. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It, this is a tragic time for people on fixed incomes or, or lower income salaries. They are absolutely affected the worst by inflation, whereas those who own assets benefit. And, and it isn't fair, but it's why I'm on here every single day trying to get people to understand, do whatever it takes do whatever it takes. I, I have uh, close friends, a father and a son who are each paying about $2,500 in rent in their own apartments. And I just was like, guys, you know, together you can afford a house, just live together. I don't care if you don't want to, this is how you're both going to build wealth because neither of you have assets. You know, you have to stand to be a little uncomfortable to ride this wave that we're on, which is exactly what you said. Those who own inflationary assets are going to get really wealthy and those, or at least stay ahead, stay ahead. That's, that's the key. If we've got this massive inflation, you need something that's returning at least that much or else you're losing you, cash exactly in the bank. Right. Cash is, is a loser, right? It's, it's losing money every day with, uh, with inflation, but assets are not. So when we see the 19% increase in, in home prices over the past year, you know, you subtract the 8%, it's really closer to 11%, but that's still a wonderful return, right? Totally. And I was very lucky recently to interview someone named Dr. Peter Lineman, who, if you Google my name and Dr. Peter Lineman, you find a very good one hour economic kind of viewpoint from him. And basically he said, yeah, I'm bullish about real estate, but not just because I just love real estate. It's just your best shot. He's not saying, hey, this is like a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's not. That's the whole point of real estate. It always works. It's always a great investment. It's not like some weird thing where you spike when you find the right MFT, the right time, and boom, you're rich. No, but it's your best shot against all these economic trends that suggest that the Fed and other central banks are going to continue to print money and continue to suppress interest rates and force asset prices to rise. Yeah. 
Yeah. Tell me about how you got started in real estate. Cause I, I just did this on, um, I, I have a, I'm now a host of the, on the market, bigger pockets podcast. And one cool. of the things they asked is how, how did you get started? And for us, it was house hacking. We had, we turned a big house into a fourplex and we lived in the, in the upper level and we rented out the lower units. One was a, a granny unit. And one was like an office that we just turned into, <laughs> Um, to units. And then the master bedroom had a door in the back. So we gave up this gorgeous master bedroom, but it made a great studio unit. And we were able to live in, in the main floor with the nice kitchen and everything for free. Uh, but a lot of people say, I would never do that. You know, I don't want to live with people, but we, we, we really carved it out. So there were walls. Everybody had their own private space, their own bathroom and their own kitchen. Uh, but bottom line is we were willing to get uncomfortable and that house went up a million dollars in the time that we lived in it, in that, in that situation. So it was worth it. But tell me about how you got started. What's your, what's your entree story (laughs) or your, your entry story? Sure. So I'll keep it. We've talked about economics a lot already. So I'll keep this a little bit brief. I've talked about this story before, but, um, you know, a lot of people had their kind of last straw moment in 2008. That's like the moment where they had their wake up call, whatever that meant. Uh, I was in college in 2008. So I wasn't a participant in the market. You know, I was an entrepreneur. Oh, just a little baby. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, when 2008 happened, I didn't get wiped out. I just wasn't really participating at wealthy either. But then I started to recognize, okay, this world of finance has these ebbs and flows. And my personality is kind of just naturally inclined to go left when people are looking right. And so I recognized the opportunity in 2008, but didn't know anything about the world of finance. So started studying the stock market, starting studying, you know, day trading, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, just trying to learn from these great people and went all in on stocks from an emotional, excuse me, from an educational standpoint, started investing and, you know, seeing gains. I thought it was a genius. I didn't understand market cycles. I just saw a number get bigger. Good for me. Right. Yay. And then, (laughs) (laughs) so that my real last straw moment was 2010. And that was when the European debt crisis happened. The reason this was such an important moment for me is that I had read all these books. Like I didn't do very well in school, but I'm so obsessive, which is very favorable as an entrepreneur because you can go as deep as you want as an entrepreneur. In school, you have to stay light about a bunch of different topics. So as I was going deep down this crazy rabbit hole, I never heard about, it was a myth, this kind of concept of diversification. I mean, I had... Apple stock. I had Johnson and Johnson stock. I had bonds. And guess what? When 2010 happened and all of a sudden everyone was focused on the grease bond yields of all things, my whole portfolio up, down 5%, 3% a day. And I was like, I've got to find my way into a relatively simple structural investment where the returns are based on supply and demand that I can predict, that I can anticipate. And I actually just wasn't really interested in real estate. I was interested in finding the answer to that question. And real estate worked its way into my life and eventually met some great mentors, uh, many of whom, you know, and um, they basically said, look, single family houses are great. And there's people that have created massive amounts of wealth for themselves in that space. But the default rate of multifamily apartments, especially agency financed assets at that time was 1.5% during 2008, nine and 10, 1.5%. So I figured if I can find a way to leapfrog most of the strategies people start with and get into that business, that's what I'm going to do. And that's how I was introduced into syndications. And here we are. Wow. Okay. Fascinating. All right. right. So 
multifamily has been as how you got started, uh, but you didn't stay there. You're into other real estate niches. Tell me about that. Yeah. So I'm glad you asked that because I actually, given what's going on in the economy right now, um, there's a lot of people discussing like who are going to be the benefactors of this massive economic shift. If central governments push the $10 trillion button, certainly there's going to be some winners and probably some losers. And I want to be on the winning side. So, and that's how I feel as an investor as well. So I am putting together a summit, which is coming up soon. It's a free summit. You can learn more about it at 100 k to investcom And the concept is very cool. So I am a passive investor in a lot of different asset classes. And I interviewed 22 experts in their respective niches to talk to them about how they anticipate their niche will respond to this coming storm, for lack of a better term. And so it's very cool because... You know, right now I have investments in Bitcoin mining, ATM machines, uh, mobile home parks, self-storage, assisted living, it, you name it. I have an investment in it because I'm a you know very proficient passive investor. That's what I built my company as. And we aggregate capital for these various investment opportunities. So right now I'm looking for cash flow focused, favorable supply and demand imbalances, and anything that will benefit from the tsunami meaning that I view this like, like as a tsunami, the metaphor is serious, this trillion dollar tsunami coming and we have the surfboards and like multifamily is there, especially in markets like Austin or Phoenix or some of the Florida markets. And it's just going to crash on those markets. And I think there's probably been a lot of chatter on your show about, you know, it's so competitive. This is why I haven't done a deal in five years. And I'm just thinking, just wait. You think cap rates are low now, just wait. You think it's competitive now, just wait. You think it's me and you and bigger pockets and everyone's talking about real estate, just wait. Because this opportunity um, is becoming more and more clear to people from the largest private equity companies in the world that have the highest cash reserves they've ever had to everyday accredited investors who are now getting access to real estate to the first time. So that's how I'm trying to position my portfolio. So when you said tsunami, what did you mean by that? So in 2008, the central bank in the United States, the Federal Reserve, made it clear that they opened the Pandora's box of quantitative easing. And I took the view at that time, looking at the way political incentives are set up, perhaps they're going to push this button every time there is a concern, a potential concern, lockdowns, lack of lockdowns, whatever it is. If the market sneezes or they think it will sneeze as a politician, you're going to be very incentivized to want to print that quantitative easing button or push that button. And it's not just the United States that's set up like that. Yeah. And so this was proven in 2020 when the lockdowns happened, we had the largest reduction of GDP in the history of the United States. And what happened? Income went up, net worth went up, you name it, it went up because they smashed the button and it created this tsunami of liquidity searching for yield. So you meant the tsunami of the, we don't even know how many trillions do we yep. do. I mean, you look at the money supply and it's up 7 trillion just in, in the last couple of years. Uh, that's right. But if you look, that's the M2. If you look at the M1, it's even more. And I don't, I don't know which one you're supposed to look at. All I know is we were flooded with liquidity and that is driving everything, even though it's not given the credit, right? It's like, oh, it's the US and we're the strongest economy and we just got <laughs> <Right>. $7 trillion. <laughs> so <laughs> Totally, totally. And you know, you mentioned the 7 trillion, that's a fair figure, but 
real estate's becoming a global phenomenon and the United States real estate is by far and away the most favorable from my perspective on a risk adjusted basis. One of many reasons is the predictability of the legal system, the size of the country, the fact that you can have cash flowing assets day one. It's not just me and you, but imagine being a Japanese investor where you literally have negative bonds trying to place a trillion dollars, or let's call it a hundred million dollars if you're a private equity company. If you're looking at Phoenix, the way I'm looking at Phoenix going, mm, 3% cap rate looks a little bit better than negative 1% bond. And there's some upside here. Yeah. Okay. Well, I am in agreement with you. Uh, my concern, and I know we're out of time, but I'll just ask really quickly, is that now the Fed is saying, although they're the ones that created the tsunami, uh, that you and I both know, and we don't work for the Fed, but we know that's going to create inflation. Just It was just a few months ago they were saying, oh, no, no, it's transitory. So now the Fed who created all that money is saying, oh, gosh, we got to pull back that inflation. I mean, can they even do it? Is it possible? Well, I don't think, okay, so a couple of things. This is obviously a very complicated matter. I know I'll keep it brief because I want to respect the time, but um, there's a reason that there were calls for it to being transitory early on. And there's also a reason that those claims went away and now they recognize what's going on. But there have been some supply chain issues and typically commodity prices can be very volatile. So if you notice something like lumber go up by 30%, everyone goes, inflation's going crazy. If lumber goes down by 30%, those same people don't go, I was wrong. They just kind of move on to some other commodity that's going up in price. You know, what I mean? so we just got to be cautious about like being super, super inflammatory about thinking that, you know, eight, nine, 10% inflation is here to stay. However, that discussion I was having earlier about as a borrower, you want inflation to deteriorate the purchase power of your debt because you want to borrow money on, you know, negative rates, basically. The government understands that too. So when you're looking at the Fed balance sheet, you know, you got this $20 trillion, who knows what debt that is owed. The government sees a way out of that debt, not through making people go skimpy on meals, but through inflation. To inflate the purchasing power of that debt is likely the only way out. And for people that are interested in how long this can go on, you know, if I look at Japan, for example, which has more than 300% debt to GDP, relatively low growth, stagflating economy, I think that unfortunately is the future of the United States, meaning it's going to be very unfortunate, again, for low and middle incomes, but potentially very favorable for those who are willing to get off the sidelines and buy quality assets with quality sponsors. Ah, good stuff. All right, Hunter, well, you are brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your, your wisdom with us here on The Real Wealth Show. That means a lot I, coming from you, so thank you. I, I would say you won this debate today. You, you won. <laughs> we should feel a little bit better. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope to see you around, and thanks again. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can go to realwealthshow.com for more in-depth education and information, and it's all free. Again, that's realwealthshow.com. Views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.